0: Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us your word so that we can understand what it we need to live a godly life before you. We thank that your word is powerful and is capable of training us in the areas of righteousness, in the areas of rebuking and correcting our behavior so that we can be conformed to the image of your son as you have called each of us to become. We pray that you would be with us now as we go into these passages and look into your word that we would have a better understanding of who you are, of your plan for us, and of how we can live in a manner that is pleasing to you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. It's a privilege to be before you today to open up the word of God and to speak to the authority and the sufficiency of scripture. It would be easy to pick any number of topics to talk about the ills that plague our culture and even some of the churches in America, but my purpose is not to stand before you today to provide a condemnation of our culture, but rather to share a concern for the body of Christ, namely the authority and sufficiency of Scripture. Many false teachings have their beginnings in the abandonment of this doctrine, and I believe it's important for the church in this day to support that. The Bible is considered outdated, impractical, or inefficient uh, or or insufficient for today's culture. But that is simply not true. God's Word is just as relevant today as it was in the early days of the church. We will examine a number of texts today that speak to this subject, and uh, I hope and pray that this will strengthen all of our faith in God and in His Word. To that end, I intentionally did not have any quotes from humans, Uh, no individuals will be quoted in this, we're looking strictly at what the scripture teaches about itself, and I will do my best to try not to address any specific issues um, about those things, I will be more than happy to talk to any of you about those specific ills of our culture at a later time, but for now I want us to look strictly at scripture and its authority and then we can deal with those things uh, at a separate time. I want us to look at the idea of sola scriptura. Uh, Some of you may be uh, aware of that. It means scripture alone. It's one of the five soles that was brought out of the Reformation. Uh, The five soles being scripture alone, sola scriptura, sole fide, faith alone, sole gratia, by grace alone, solus Christus, through Christ alone, and sole dio gloria, to the glory of God alone. These are the five Soles that came out of the Reformation as a uh, a call back to Scripture, back to the truth of God's Word, and to abandon some of the traditions and some of the extra-biblical teachings and and false doctrine of the day, and call them back to that. As I was doing some research uh, for the sermon, I noticed that there were a number of critics who didn't like the idea of sola scriptura, And one of the things I do when I'm trying to teach is is to define terms, and so we understand what we're all talking about. So I want to make sure that we understand when we talk about scripture alone, or sole scriptura, what it means and what it does not mean. So some of the critics, the first thing we want to look at, it does not mean, we'll touch briefly on these ideas, is the idea that only scripture itself has authority. God has clearly established other authorities in his word, pastors, teachers, civil authorities. We see that in Romans 13.1. It says we are to submit to the governing authorities over us. In Hebrews 13.17, it says we are to submit to the leaders who watch over our souls. That is the idea of church leadership. And 1 Peter 2.13 says we are to submit to every human authority. In context, that is talking about the authorities over us, including those who would be cruel masters and mistreat us even when we are innocent. So clearly, Scripture itself teaches that there are authorities, so we'll look at later what it does mean, but that does not mean that there is no authority outside of Scripture and people can just abandon any and all authorities that God has placed over us. But these institutions all derive their authority from God and His Word, and so they are under Scripture and never over it or even equal to it. The second uh, aspect of, of Sola scriptura it does not mean that scripture contains all truth, okay? And what I mean by that is that you're not going to find things like how to conjugate Spanish verbs in the Bible, okay? It's not a grammar textbook for Spanish. That's not what it contains. Now, does that mean that Spanish is not true? Absolutely not. That's a ridiculous statement. So, logically, we can say that, you know, that there are truths that exist outside of scripture. Uh, however, all truth, no truth will contradict what God's word says, even though all truth is not contained specifically in scripture. Another example is that you don't see things like the chemical formulas of different elements spoken about in the Bible, but when it talks about those elements, such as water and air, which we'll see an example of here in a little bit, it is accurate in how it records the aspects of those elements. There are two bad philosophies that can result from this, this fallacy of trying to say that Scripture contains all truth. The first idea is that there is a rejection of anything not explicitly in Scripture. There are uh, some who try to say that you know if it's not outlined in scripture by word and chapter and verse then that means it can't exist Um, things like science and medicine god has allowed in his providence us to develop medications that help to ease human suffering you know aspirin is not discussed in the bible but i would suggest you might want to take that if you're getting a headache okay god's god's word is sufficient in that it it provides um, the truth and the moral grounding for everything but it doesn't mean that every single detail of our human lives is contained therein the second bad philosophy that can come out of the idea of trying to say that only uh, truth, uh, the only scripture contains truth is that it's allowing of anything not specifically forbidden. Um, the idea that you know, God doesn't say anything about speed limits, okay? um, but God does say that we are to obey the human authorities over us. So just because something is not explicitly forbidden in chapter and verse doesn't mean that we can just use it uh, to our own ends. 1 Corinthians 6.12 says that everything is permissible, but not everything is helpful. And Paul said he would not be controlled by anything. There would be nothing he would allow to control himself, to become obsessed with, to become uh, addicted to, so that he would take his eyes off of Christ. Later on in the same book, in chapter 10, verse 23, he says everything is permissible, but not everything edifies. Again, the idea being that there are those principles in Scripture that can be applied outside of these specific commands of God. Things like... Um, Edifying and building up one another so just because the Bible specifically doesn't specifically condemn something doesn't mean we can do it if it's something that's going to offend someone something that's going to cause another to stumble. The third item that uh, is a response to criticism about the idea of sola scriptura is that people are free to interpret the Bible as they wish. That was one of the big things I saw in my research about critiques of the, the doctrine of sola scriptura was that they said, well, the people are just going to randomly do whatever they want because they'll reject all teaching and, and all of those things. But that's not what the Reformers mean, and that's not what we mean when we talk about founding on Scripture. It does not mean just me and my Bible and whatever I want to decide out of it because God has given us teachers and pastors, and he has given us tools that we can use uh, for that. Second Timothy two, Paul tells Timothy to teach others who will be able to teach others as well. We can infer from that that we are intended to learn from those who know more than us, and we are to teach those who know less. Again, showing that we are to learn and understand and grow from others and not just our own uh, thoughts and desires. Later on in that chapter, in verse 15... Many of you will probably know this verse from Moana, but uh, God commands us to study his word and to correctly understand and apply it. That, That means that there is a meaning to everything that God has given us, and we are to try to discern what that meaning is. So if that's what it does not mean, what does it mean? What do we mean by the idea of sola scriptura? First, that God's revealed word is our ultimate authority in all things. It is the final say in all matters, including any new philosophies or ideas that come along. Over 60 times in the New Testament, Jesus and the apostles used the phrase, it is written. And that is an appeal to scripture and to its authority. So their ministry wasn't just, you know, this is our, our idea, this is something we have decided. It is written in God's word that these things, you will be holy as I am holy is one example. We see verses like 2 Timothy 3.16 and 2 Peter 1.21, which we just read, that are showing that Scripture is inspired by God. In in other words, its authority is divine, and we will touch on that subject uh, more later on as well. But God's, God's revealed Word is our ultimate authority. It is above everything else. It is not equal to anything else. It is above everything else. And so every other authority must fall in line with what Scripture teaches. The second meaning of sola scriptura is that the Bible is true on every subject to which it speaks. What I mean by that is when it records things, it records them accurately. A few examples of that, Job 28 verse 25 talks about the air having weight. God gives weight to the winds. Okay, The idea that there is mass in air. Uh, That's something that was not known uh, until more recently in science, but God recorded accurately in his word that there is a weight even to things like air. Leviticus 17.11 says the life of the flesh is in the blood. And we know that now, to be true, based on science and medicine, that the blood is what carries the necessary nutrients to, on a cellular level to provide oxygen, to provide those building blocks to repair itself, to providing sustained life. And the final example is in Jeremiah 31.35. God is telling his people that he will preserve Israel as a nation. And the illustration he uses for that is the Precision of the orbits of celestial bodies. He said, as long as you see the sun, moon, and stars continuing in their orbits, in the same pattern that you've seen them in all the time, you know that my promise to preserve Israel will continue on. There will be no deviation from that until you see the sun. So as long as you see the sun rising and setting in the same time, and the moon is still going through its phases, you can be sure that God's promises will still exist, specifically in the area of dealing with his people. The final meaning when we talk about sola scriptura is that the idea that God has a purpose for the words that he has spoken to us. They're not something, nice platitudes or some, uh, you know, just good stories that we can hear and get some morals from. God has a reason and a purpose. Um, Everything that God told us is something that we need to know. And the converse of that, everything that we needed to know, God has revealed to us. So again, his purposes are there and and he has a reason and, and a plan for the revealing of his word. We'll look at that a little more deeply as we go into three different aspects of Scripture. The first aspect is going to be that Scripture is inspired. The idea that it is, it sources from God, that it is breathed out, it is literally uh, the words themselves come from God. The second aspect is going to be the idea of Scripture being inerrant, uh, that it is accurate and complete in, it, in the original texts, and that there is no error in it because God intended his word to preser- to be preserved The final aspect is the idea that Scripture is intentional. Again, the idea of having a purpose and having a reason for what God has given to us. Turn with me, if you will, in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1, if you have your Bibles with you. And we're going to look at a number of verses in this chapter. But for right now, we're just going to look at 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21. Scripture is inspired because God spoke through men who were faithful to write down His words. We see this In verse 21, Because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. This is not simple dictation where the Holy Spirit said, Write this down, A, B, C, D. It's not channeling where people just empty their mind and start writing pens out and things like that. This is God superintending in such a way that they were conscious and attentive to what they were doing, and yet it was God's words that were coming through. A good illustration, I think, of this is the idea of a painting. When an artist is painting, the creation on the canvas comes from their mind, their skill, their abilities, their thought processes, their desires, and their intentions. But the characteristics of that painting are changed depending on which brush they choose to use and how they choose to use that brush. If you use a very small brush, you can get some very fine details, but it's going to take a long time to get those details in there. You can use a very wide brush and paint with huge strokes, and it will do a lot of coverage, and yet it will not have the fine details. You can also use things like a stippling versus a light stroke or a heavy stroke. And so, in a similar way, God chose to use different men in different ways and retain the characteristics, their training, their terminologies, we'll see later on in the book of Luke, and the idea that um, the characteristics of the authors came through and their writing style came through, and yet, we see uh, in the next couple of examples that God's very words were recorded even then. Turn with me, if you would, to the book of Acts, chapter 1. We're going to be looking at a number of different verses, as I mentioned, um, and so... Uh, Look at Acts chapter 1. We'll look at the first example of the Holy Spirit speaking through men. This is Peter speaking um, to the group. Uh, This is right after... um, or This is during the time that Matthias has chosen to replace Judas, and they're still waiting uh, for the day of Pentecost to happen. In verse 16, he says, Brothers... The scripture had to be fulfilled that the Holy Spirit through the mouth of David spoke in advance about Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. The Holy Spirit through the mouth of David spoke this. This is a quotation or an allusion to Psalm chapter 41, verse 9. He said that the one who ate bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Okay, And this was fulfilled, we see in John chapter 13, where Judas takes the piece of bread that Jesus dipped in the sauce and gave to him. And then he went out and ended up betraying him by bringing the temple guards to arrest Jesus. So again, we see the Holy Spirit was working through David in such a way that David may not have even known what he was writing. But he was writing a song, writing some lyrics down to a poem. And God used it through the Holy Spirit speaking through him to write a prophecy about the Messiah and how he would be betrayed by a friend. So we see, again, that God's word is spoken through people even maybe um, without them understanding that they are writing a prophecy, uh, but they are writing the words of God. Turn with me back to Hebrews chapter 3 and we're going to look at a a couple of parallel passages in Hebrews chapter 3 and Hebrews chapter 4 and I want us to see uh, a, a comparison and a contrast between these two, these two uh, quotations. The first one is in Hebrews chapter 3, and we'll just read verses 7 and 8. Uh, but if you look, there's um, the quotation continues clear down through verse 11. But verse 7 of Hebrews chapter 3 says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. The Holy Spirit is again attributed to saying these things. This is a quotation from Psalm 95, verses 7 through 11. And David is referring to the time of of testing in the wilderness, the time when the Israelites turned their backs on God, complained, and and, um, did not follow God's leading, or or the man of God, Moses, who had been placed over them. Today, if you will hear hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. He's referring back to that, that historical reference. But again, we see... As the Holy Spirit says. The Holy Spirit is the source and the speaker that is attributed to by the writer of Hebrews. Look over at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 7. We see again Psalm 95 is quoted, this time only portions of verses 7 and 8. And look at the difference here. Again, he specifies a certain day, today. Speaking through David after such a long time as previously stated. Now, who is the he in this verse? It's God. God is speaking to his people, and there's several quotations above that as well. He's speaking through David after such a long time as previously stated. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Two different quotations from the same passage. The first time, it says, as the Holy Spirit says. The second time, it says, God speaking through David. There's two truths I want us to see from this. The first, the Holy Spirit is unmistakably God. He is attributed to being able to speak with the authority of God. He is not some impersonal force, not some emanation from God the Father. He is a separate individual person who is still united with God the Father and God the Son in the Trinity. He's part of the Godhead, and he is a unique individual person. The second truth that I want us to see is the idea that the words recorded in Scripture are God's words and not man's. Both times, it is God who is the speaker, God as a whole, and God, the Holy Spirit, in chapter 3. And it's just David is the mouthpiece that he used. And again, we see David is, is writing these passages. He's just writing a song about the history of Israel and a call to people to not harden their hearts, a, a call to history and appeal to history so that people would follow God and do what he, they should. And yet, this is used to show that God's words themselves were recorded when he was doing this. The second aspect of Scripture is that it is inerrant. Uh, We'll look at a few verses talking about that. I mentioned we would look at Luke, so let's turn to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, is the introduction to the gospel of Luke. Now, Luke was a doctor, and if you read through his gospel, you will see that there are different words, different terminologies used, because he was a learned man, he was educated, and he, was, he had a much more training and understanding of how to write and how to uh, understand these things. But if you look at verses uh, 1 through 4 of Luke chapter 1, it tells us how he began to write his gospel and why. Many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us. It also seemed good to me, since I have carefully investigated everything from the very first, to write to you in an orderly sequence, most honorable Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things with which you have been instructed. Luke intended to write a research paper. He was going back to say, we we need to understand and know the truth about the life of Christ. You know, and he's talking to this most honored Theophilus. Most uh, comment, commentaries talk about it being a an honorific, a, a potentially a, a Roman official, um, you know, a pseudonym for them, uh, but also intended to be a much larger audience as well. But the idea is that he intended to write this down so that they could understand the truth about the life of Christ. But he did it in such a way. Because the Holy Spirit was working through him to record the very words, to record them accurately and inerrantly. And and when he made an accurate account, he wanted to go back and find first-hand accounts as much as he could. And yet God superintended through that process so that it was harmonized with the other Gospels and so that we would see the truth of of the life of Christ. Turn with me to Romans chapter 9, verse 17. We're going to look at uh, Scripture being personified. There's a couple of passages we're going to look at in that idea. Um, scripture having the same authority as God himself. Romans chapter 9 and verse 17 is a quotation in the Old Testament. Romans nine seventeen says, For the scripture tells Pharaoh, I raised you up for this reason, so that I may display my power in you, and that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. We see scripture speaking as if it has authority, the same authority as God. And there are a number of times where we see the idea of God and his word being synonymous in scripture, being the same thing, because in God's mind there is no difference. The word of God is God's, God's law, God's uh, precepts, and there is no less authority in what he speaks, what he says, and what he has written down than in God himself. The scriptures tell Pharaoh, if you look at Exodus nine fifteen and 16, Pharaoh is told, through Aaron and Moses, I could have obliterated you at any time. I could have sent a plague and wiped you all out. The reason I let you live is so that my name would be proclaimed throughout all of the earth. We see that God had a plan and a purpose, but he was inerrant in the way that he recorded those those prophecies. Turn with me, if you would, uh, back to Genesis chapter 15. I want to look at another prophecy speaking to Pharaoh in the Egyptian captivity. Genesis chapter 15 verses 13. This is commonly called the Abrahamic covenant when God revealed specifically what he would uh, promise to Abraham. Actually, I should say to Abram because at this point he's not even the father of many nations. He's not the father of anyone uh, because he is still waiting on his child. And God it reiterates his promise to him in verses 13 through 15. Then God said to Abram, Know this for certain, your offspring will be foreigners in a land that does not belong to them. They will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. However, I will judge the nation they serve, and afterward they will go out with many possessions. God had intended the Egyptian captivity to occur, and he had predicted it clear back at the beginning, before there was a nation of Israel, God had predicted the nation of Israel would be enslaved for 400 years, and that Pharaoh and, and the nation would be judged based on their treatment of, him, of, of them. And so we see Scripture is predicting, is inerrant, whether it's predicting or recording past events. Let's look also at Galatians chapter 3. This is another uh, passage that speaks to Scripture predicting things Galatians chapter 3 verse 8 it says now the scripture saw in advance that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and told the good news ahead of time to Abraham saying all the nations will be blessed through you so that those who have faith are blessed with Abraham who had faith this is a quotation from Galatians, I'm sorry, from Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. This is a prediction from before Abram even left uh, the city of Ur. God told him, you need to go out and you need to follow to the land that I will show you. You need to follow me in obedience and I will make you a father of many nations and all nations on the earth will be blessed through you. So again, before Israel even became a nation, God's intention was that all the nations, the Gentiles and the Jews, would be blessed through the descendants of Abraham. There's a a prophecy in Amos chapter 9 that I want us to look at that's related to this idea of the Gentiles. And again, this is the reason that Paul is talking about in Galatians 3, that the Gentiles were always supposed to be part of God's plan of salvation. It was not supposed to be the Jews only and then let the Gentiles go away. That God's intention was always to bring the Gentiles in at some point in the future. Amos chapter 9, and looking at verses 11 and 12. Amos is an interesting book that uh, has a a lot of different judgments in it. Uh, Speaking the judgments of God, talking about the day of the Lord. Uh, I was reading uh, this morning in my devotions and it talked about you do not want to see the day of the Lord because the day of the Lord for Israel at that point was judgment, was darkness, was not light, was not redemption. But later on, we see in, in this uh, section here, in Amos nine eleven and 12, it says, In that day, I will restore the fallen booth of David. I will repair its gaps, restore its ruins, and rebuild it as in the days of old, so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that are called by my name. This is the Lord's declaration. He will do this. Clear back. In the Old Testament here, in, the, in the, the judgment of Amos, God is telling him, I will have a restoration for the nation of Israel. The tent of David, the tabernacle of David, it's a plan where it's saying the house of David, his, his throne will be reestablished. And all of the nations who are called by my name will be restored at that time as well. God's plan was always for the Gentiles to partake in the covenant and in salvation, and yet he still says, as we saw in Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-five, that he will still preserve Israel as a nation and fulfill all the promises that he has given to them. So, Scripture is inerrant in when it when it predicts future events as well as in uh, recording past events. The final aspect of Scripture that we want to look at is that Scripture is intentional. Let's look at Isaiah chapter fifty-five, verses. 10 through 11. Isaiah 55, 10 through 11. Every word spoken by the Lord will accomplish his intentions. 55, 10 says, Just as the rain and snow fall from heaven and do not return there without saturating the earth and making it germinate and sprout and providing seed to sow and food to eat, so my word that comes from my mouth will not return to me empty but it will accomplish what I please and will prosper in what I send it to do. God is not wasteful. He will accomplish the purposes of his word as he sends it out. In 1 Corinthians 3, 6-8, through we see this same idea where Paul talks about he planted, Apollos was the one who watered, but it's God who gives the increase. We need to be faithful in performing our duties that God has called us to do, and yet we need to recognize that the result is always God's. He is the one who is, in, who is in control of that. Sometimes, God's accomplished purposes for his word are to send a racist, bigoted prophet to a nation and to have them repent and turn to him, as in the book of Jonah. Sometimes, God's purpose for his word is to have a prophet go to his own chosen people for decades and have no one listen to him as in Isaiah. It's important for us to recognize that we don't read into this and say that God's good purposes will be accomplished because of his word. It's God's purposes. He is the one who is sovereign and has the deciding, can decide how his word will work in this world. We always want to see the good things happen, and yet it says God will accomplish his purposes in his timing. And we need to make sure that we recognize what it exactly says. 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 is a passage that's normally used for the idea of inspiration, and yet included in that is the idea of a purpose, an intention for the Word that God has given us. 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 says this, All Scripture is inspired by God, and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work. Again, we see the authority of Scripture because it is inspired by God. It, is, it comes through the mouth of God. And yet it doesn't come for an empty purpose. God will accomplish His purposes. In this case, He says that what what He intends to accomplish is the teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training of His people. The idea of teaching is imparting knowledge, learning what we need to learn to know Him better. The idea of rebuking and correcting is Correcting bad behavior, uh, correcting and and putting people back on the straight path, you know, uh, admonishing and challenging when people are behaving incorrectly. And training in righteousness is the idea of discipline and and self-discipline as well, of understanding what it means to live a holy life before God. And the accomplishment of this is so that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. We are called to do good works, but that is a result of our salvation and not the cause or the source of it. God's purpose is also seen in what he tells us and what he does not. Turn with me to John chapter 20, and we'll look in verses 30 and 31 of John chapter 20. We see the purpose statement of the gospel, the reason that John wrote his account. John 20, verses 30 and 31. See, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. He who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God, we see in John three seventeen. So we see the purpose that the Holy Spirit inspired John to write the gospel was so that they would have an understanding of who Jesus is so that they could believe in him and have life in his name. God has a plan and a purpose for every detail that he records. Now, were there more miracles that Jesus performed? Absolutely. Are there some times where Jesus... uh, The miracles are just said, Jesus healed the sick. Everybody that came, he healed them all. That's it. He's using a big, broad stroke of brush at that point. Are there times where he uses fine details and tells us exactly what was going on? Yes. This woman who had an issue of blood for a number of years and had spent all of her money on doctors and trying to get them to cure her could not be cured, and yet... Her simple faith in touching out, reaching out and touching the robe of Jesus caused uh, her to be healed. Your faith has made you well, he said. Again, there are reasons God records those specific details, and there are reasons why he leaves others out. God is not obligated to answer all of our questions, to provide answers for us. I would uh, submit to you that if you look at Job, the book of Job, especially chapters 38 through 41... God is not obligated to answer any of our questions. (laughs) Because we see there Job's questions were not answered. But the answer he received was, I'm in control. I know what's going on. Have you plumbed the depths of the ocean? Do you even know how long it takes for you know eagles to make nests? Do you know where they go? Can you find all of these things? Do you know how, how high it is? Do you know how old the earth is? Weren't you there when they laid the foundations? Job says, that's okay, I don't need to know anymore. It's sufficient to understand and know the character of God. God has given us enough details. Everything that we need to know, God has told us. And everything that God has told us is something that we needed to know. Every detail was not recorded, but only those serving a purpose. The next topic I want to talk on is the idea of the strict requirements for interpretation. Interpretation. It's not simply enough that we believe the authority of God and, and, and we accept that His Word is the very words of God. But we need to make sure that we understand what it means. We mentioned before that Second 2 Timothy two, fifteen says that we are to study and to understand the Word of God and to correctly apply it, correctly divide it, and understand the meaning. But those meanings are from the words. Look at Second Peter chapter one, we'll look at another verse in that passage. Second Peter one, verse twenty. 2 so Peter 1 verse 20 says, first of all, you should know this, no prophecy of scripture comes from one's own interpretations. Now doing some setting, it looked like that word could also mean origination or the idea of, of the uh, initiation of the thought. Uh, but, but other verses confirm this idea that you know it's, it's used in a metaphorical way that you, know, that you can't just make up things as you go along, you have to understand what the scripture says. God's word means what it means and we need to, def- to discern what that is and not to define it ourselves. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 2, talks about the idea of interpreting God's word and and how we apply it. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 2, says, You must not add anything to what I command you, or take anything away from it, so that you may keep the commands of the Lord your God I am giving you. Moses is speaking to the children of Israel right before they go into the promised land. Now remember, this is the 40 years of disobedience, the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness because of the disobedience and not going into the land. And he is retelling them what the law says, reiterating to them the commandments of God. And he tells them here, you must not add to or take away from what it says, the simple meaning of the words. We'll look at a couple examples of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, how they had violated this command and how Jesus condemned them for that. There's some who might say that this command to add and, and to not add or remove is specific to the law. It's only for Israel. It doesn't apply today or be, you know, because it's only repeated in the, in, the, in the Old Testament. There is a repetition of this same command in, in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 32, whether or not to add or to take away. But there's also a similar command in the New Testament. Revelation chapter 22, verses 18 and 19 Revelation 22, 18 and 19 say, I testify to everyone who hears the prophetic words of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this prophetic book, God will take away his share of the tree of life and the holy city written in this book. Again, there will be people who say, well, that's just applying to the book of Revelation and not you know, not to all of the other scriptures. But I think we can see from the diversity of how of of it being applied in two different places through two different time frames in in God working. The very last book of the Bible says, don't add to or take away from God's commands. I think we can see that this is definitely something we should consider. And I would submit to you, as we look at what Jesus said and how he uh, talked to the Pharisees about this command, it is something that should be applied to all scripture. Turn with me to Mark chapter 7. And we'll see what Jesus thought about the idea of adding to or taking away from Scripture. Mark chapter seven and verse thirteen. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, and there's a number of different topics that they were talking about. You know, and uh, condemning Jesus. You know, you do, your disciples don't wash your hands. You eat with sinners. You do all of these different things that are not according to the traditions of the elders. And what Jesus told them in verse thirteen. He said, you revoke God's word by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many similar things. He was condemning them because they were putting their traditions on the same level or even above, in some cases, the word of God. They allowed people to violate the clear commands of Scripture, honor your father and your mother, by saying, well, if I was going to take care of you, that money's already been dedicated to the temple, so I don't want to violate my agreement with God and take that money that I would have given to the temple and provide for you all. Jesus said, you are violating God's command for the sake of your own traditions. Do not add anything to God's word. Now again, if you look at the principle of of how Jesus looked at the law, we'll look at that later, that he didn't come to abolish the law. When he was speaking to the woman at the well in Samaria, the question was asked, how is it that we are supposed to worship? Are we supposed to worship in the temple? Are we supposed to worship up on this hill, as, as we Samaritans say? What was Jesus' response to her? It's not going to matter pretty quickly. Okay? Don't even worry about the, the question of where you're supposed to worship because the, the purpose of worship is doing it in spirit and in truth. Jesus doesn't say here, you guys can argue about finer points, but at some point, you know, the, word, the law is going to be abolished and it's not going to matter all these things because we have complete freedom when after I die. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say that this command is okay to break afterwards. Or that we can add or take away things at some point in the future, he condemns them in very harsh language, that you should not mess with god 's word. We see a, a, the opposite group, the Sadducees, in mark chapter twelve in verse twenty four This is the story about or the the question that they proposed to him. lady gets married to this gentleman; he has six brothers they don 't have any kids husband dies. Second brother gets married, no kids, dies, third brother, etc., and on, forth. All seven of them die. When she's resurrected, whose husband will she actually be? Now, if you know anything about the history of the Sadducees, you know that this is a ridiculous question because they don't even believe in the resurrection. They don't believe in angels or miraculous signs and things like that. So they're asking Jesus a question, and his response to them is in verse 24. Are you not deceived? Because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. They were taking away doctrines they didn't like. They were ignoring them and, and putting them away and saying, you know, we don't believe in, you know, the resurrection angels and stuff. That was just nice stories from the Old Testament, you know. We, we have a much more practical doctrine right now. We, we need to work with the Rome, with Rome and, to, and to work with these people and do these things. And Jesus condemns that. He says, they're condemned for their lack of knowledge because they wanted to remove those things that they didn't like or the ones that they found difficult to do. The final point we want to look at is the idea of the sufficiency of Scripture, Scripture being sufficient for all of our spiritual needs. Turn back with me to Second Peter chapter 1 again. We'll look at a couple of verses there as we look at our final point of the idea of the sufficiency of Scripture. Second Peter 1.3 says his divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. God has provided everything that we need to live a godly life. As we mentioned before, if God has told us something, we needed to know it. And if we needed to know something, he told us. The Bible is our, our standard, what we have to follow. You know, if it's something that's not mentioned, the details about, you know, how many different people he healed on the roadside, it's not important for us. It's not something that will help us live a godly life. All the details that we need have been recorded in there. We still need to consider those areas where the scripture is silent. We mentioned before, 1 Corinthians 6, 13, and 1 Corinthians 10, 29. Also, Romans 14, 22 through 23, don't condemn yourself by what you approve. We need to make sure that we're not causing offense to other people. But... Again, God has given us everything we need to live for life and godliness. The principles in his word should guide us in areas where the Bible does not explicitly say, Thou shalt not fill in the blank. Look on down to verse 19 of this same passage. 2 Peter 1.19 says, So we have the prophetic word strongly confirmed. Some translations say a more sure prophecy. Strongly confirmed. You will do well to pay attention to it as to a lamp shining in a dismal place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. This is the idea that we have a more sure word than first-hand accounts in scripture itself. If you look uh, back up to verses 16 through 18, Peter says, "We don't we didn't follow cleverly contrived myths, but we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty for when he received honor and glory from god the father a voice came from him uh, came to him from the majestic glory this is my beloved son i take delight in him and we heard his voice when it came from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain peter's talking about the transfiguration the partial revealing of the glory of christ here on earth before he ascended into heaven and peter says we have a more sure, a more confirmed word than even that in Scripture, if you look in verses 20 and 21. How can that be that something as majestic and miraculous as Jesus himself revealing his glory, bringing back Elijah and Moses from the dead to stand with him on a mountain, how can that not be as sure as God's word? A parable, or it's not really a parable, it's a story comes to mind. Luke chapter 16. I say it's not a parable because there's actually a name in there. If you look at a parable, it says, A man went out to sow. A man had ninety sheep, 99 sheep. This is a, a name. Lazarus was a beggar who stood at the rich man's door, begged for food, covered in sores, and he died. He went to paradise with Father Abraham, and the rich man went to the place of torment the rich man called out said, Father Abraham, send Lazarus to dip his finger in water to quench my thirst even this little bit because I am in agony in this place. Abraham says, that's not possible. There is a huge chasm. There's a huge divide between all of us. We cannot do that. What does he say in verse 27? The rich man said, Father, he said, then I beg you to send him to my father's house because I have five brothers to warn them so that they do not come to this place of torment, Abraham's response. But Abraham said, "They have Moses and the prophets; they should listen to them." Abraham, said, read your Bible. Basically, they have Moses and the prophets; they have the scriptures; they should listen to them. The rich man says, "No, Father Abraham, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent." What does Jesus say? Abraham said. He told him, If they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. If you don't believe the sufficiency of Scripture, if you don't believe the truth of God's Word, risen evangelists coming from the grave are not going to convince you either. Because your mind is made up, your will has already been set Jesus believed in the power of Scripture. This is why Scripture is a more sure word, because it is the very words of God. We see here the power of Scripture. It's a more sure word. It is a more specific example, a more concrete method of teaching than even the transfiguration of Christ on the mountain or someone rising from the dead to evangelize lost people. Psalm 119, verse 89. The word of the Lord is established in heaven forever. We know that it's sufficient because its origin is not from the earth. The earth has been corrupted by sin. All of creation will be remade at some some point. But Lord, your word is forever. It is firmly fixed in heaven. We know that God's word is established forever. That there is no end to it. Heaven and earth will pass away. Heaven being the sky, not God's dwelling place. But heaven, the heavens and the earth will pass away, but God's word will remain. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, our last scripture we'll look at this morning. I mentioned that we were going to talk about Jesus establishing the law and not not trying to abolish it. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. It says, don't assume that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. That's a shorthand way of saying the scriptures of the Old Testament. I did not come to destroy but to fulfill. For I assure you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all things are accomplished. Jesus is talking about when the full promises of God, the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, all of the promises that God has said are fulfilled in the earthly return of Jesus Christ to the Mount of Olives, when he establishes his kingdom and reestablishes the reign of David. Then, God's law will be finished. Until that time, not even letters and strokes of the pen are going to fall away. That means that the very words themselves are important, and God intended them for us to to know. What does that mean for us? How do we apply these truths? The first application I want us to look at is that we should interpret our experiences and perspectives in view of Scripture and not the other way around. Our emotions are very much real and God has given them to us. We are emotional creatures because God has given them to us. But we have to remember we are corrupted by sin and God is not. So our experiences, our perspectives, our our mindsets are corrupted by sin and we need to look at Scripture to know the right perspectives to have. We should interpret our experiences, perspectives and view of Scripture and not the other way around. The second application is we must search the scriptures as the Bereans to ensure that what we believe and what we are being taught is correct. When there is a conflict, scripture must determine what we follow. The Bible commands us to study, to learn, to understand, to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. These are, these are active words. This is not something that I sit back and just listen to things. That's, I need to study and understand what these words mean. I need to look at the context of passages. I need to look at cross-references. I need to look at the culture of the time and see what it meant, what the writers meant by the words that they used. Because we've seen in other passages, the words themselves, the very letters that God commanded people to write down are important. So we need to know what those words meant and what they mean for us today. We need to study Search the scriptures as the Bereans to ensure that what we believe and what we are being taught is correct. When there is a conflict, scripture must be the determining factor on what we follow. Final application is we must not seek other opinions, options, or philosophies in areas where the teaching of scripture is clear and evident. That's what the Sadducees did. They said, we don't like this doctrine of resurrection. We don't like this idea of angels, so we're just going to ignore them. We are not free to do that. We cannot add or take away From God's word. We must not seek other options, opinions, or philosophies in areas where the teaching of Scripture is clear and evident. God has given us His word, He has called us to obey it. We are not allowed to discard the parts that we don't like, to add our own personal preferences, or to reinterpret meanings based on cultural sensibilities or fads. The grass withers, flowers fade but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again that you have given us your word. We thank you that you have given us minds to understand. We thank you that you have given us the Holy Spirit to help to illuminate these passages so that we can understand the truth of what you have given to us. Lord, we pray that you would be with each of us as we contemplate these words, as we search the scriptures as you have commanded us to do, that we would have confidence in your word in the truth that it contains and you would help us to apply it correctly to our lives that we would live holy lives in a crooked and perverse nation as you have called us to do but we thank you for the time that we've had together for the fellowship of the saints we pray that it would be a sweet smelling offer to you as we go from here that we would not forget those things that we have seen today from your word that we would live them out in our communities around us and to the world so that we could be a testimony for you. We ask these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.